Hello, John. Hello. We're forcing this one in, aren't we? Yeah, we're squeezing it. We did. Schedules, man. I was sick. You were sick, but plus schedules. It's just like, yeah, you were sick. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and my schedule's hell after today. I bet. Oh, yeah, mine too. <laughs> oh, and it's homecoming week too, so I've got to worry about my daughter being out yeah. and about. Luckily, I don't think my kid's going to participate. He's a freshman. He's just not into it. Yeah. Uh, well, my daughter wasn't either on freshman, but really? now that she, well, because we have the ninth grade center. So yeah. it was a separate school for ah, freshmen. Okay. So lame. Yeah. Ninth grade center. That just sounds lame. I know. <laughs> it sounds like an institution <laughs> or something. Um, but yeah. So you, did you bounce back quickly after your little illness you had like no. the next day you were okay or did no. it drag? No, I've just been relatively just not here present, not present. You being a mid, John, <laughs> or a simp, <laughs> John, this is pre-show. John and I were talking about all the new internet lingo that the kids are using. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of code words these days. I, I have to go ask my, my 11 year old, what, what the cool words are nowadays. Cause I don't know. A lot of them I hear. So I coach my son's soccer team. And so a lot of them I hear from those kids. Oh, really? Just yeah. on the field and in practice. Yeah. yeah. Well, John, let's get the show on the road. <sighs> This is uh, Mischief by The Brewery. That's literally the name of it. They're in uh, The Brewery. Plus, where are they? Somewhere the Brewery. Yeah. Not B- any brewery, B-R- but The Brewery. B-R-U-E-R-Y. Oh. It's a Belgian strong ale. Why is it strong? Well, I don't know, but I like that. Strong. I think strong means good. What do you think? Uh, yeah. No one wants a weak-ass beer, you know? That's true. I wouldn't know the difference, though. Now you're about to find out. <laughs> I told you I can't handle it like I used to. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> I'm down to like one, God, maybe two is pushing it. I'm like, I can't even get up without making old man sounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did have a leg workout, and now I can't get my headphones on. Yeah. Uh, okay. Old, speaking of old man, I spend half my time on the freaking recliner chair because... Been developing some acid reflux these days. So. Oh yeah, I'm on I'm on medication for that. Yeah, there's some heck the purple pill at the you know you get in the store that that's that works pretty well. But I'm on I don't know I get a prescription. I think it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this week in geriatrics. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, can we start doing titles already? When do we become the old men in the room? Um, you know what? Very slowly, then all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's not a gradual thing, is it? No, you think it's, it's going to be a gradual thing, but it's not. It's It starts out gradually, you notice little things, and then you turn around and you've got white hairs everywhere, and you want to complain about people on your lawn. Yeah. And it's true. It is Every true. time someone, because I have the rain camera, and it dings every time someone crosses my front yard. And my window is why right. Do you, why do you do that to yourself, John? Just so you can make sure you're, you have a high anxiety level throughout the day? Yes. My my window <laughs> is, my office window faces that. Yeah. And without without doubt, I'm staring at someone with their dog peeing in my yard. Yeah. Well, that's fine. It's the poop that I don't like. Well, yeah, that happens too, but yeah. yes, they pick them up. But Anyway. Well, uh, we're, we're trying to keep this, uh, is, it, is it bi-weekly or semi-weekly? I don't I never, it's to be I weekly, never know. According to our website. Well, yeah, and you know, uh, code coverage podcast, which I wish they would bring back, is also a weekly, a weekly podcast. John, <laughs> I think it's been a couple of years. 
By the way, um, okay, if Benioff can claim, can claim to be the number one software company and the number two software company in Japan, we can certainly claim to be weekly. Oh, absolutely. No, we're daily. That's just we're how daily. the game no. is played. <laughs> um, I don't know if I told you, but uh, Matt Lacey came out for the, uh, the the meetup at Dreamforce. He was at Dreamforce. Um, I think I saw pictures or references to oh, that. Oh, yeah, that's But I don't right. think he told me about okay. it. If, if there was some event that happened or something notable other than he showed up. Yeah, he jumped up on the table and was dancing and oh. ripped his shirt off. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Did you bring out your dollar bills? <laughs> or am I taking it too far? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should stop there. This is a family uh, show, John. Actually, yeah. it's not, but what are we starting with today? Um, we can start with I, I have a couple things. I, I do want to talk about Stefan's uh, article inside the trust layer. And also, this is I didn't even read this. I thought it was just interesting, though. Um, it, oh, CIO Magazine. Seven Sins of Software Development. Seven Sins. Oh, yeah. I want to hear that. Yeah. Actually, in, and I. I don't know where to put this in the show, but I had like a general question just on general things. Okay. But uh, I want to, I want to listen to those sins and see if it, if I can overlap with that. Do we want to start with that? Yeah. Okay. So I promise Salesforce trailblazers, trailblazers and hard, hardliners out there. We will, we, Blaters. we will get to Salesforce stuff, but right now we're going to start with general software development. All right. So this is again, CIO magazine. Of course, it's got a great – being CIO Magazine, it's got a, a, a great, which is read as terrible, stock photography picture of two dude bros looking at a monitor. And one guy is actually – this is so triggering. They're talking about whatever's on the screen, and he's touching the monitor with his oh. greasy, gross, chicken fried chicken <laughs> stained fingers. Oh. Why do they have to trigger me, John? I don't know. You've touched some screens in your day. Uh, I only touch the screens that are supposed to be touched, and even I don't really like that. I don't know. There's a few times you touch my monitor. Well, I apologize for that. I feel I feel <laughs> shame right now. Just, I feel like you've grown into that. Like you I, didn't I used to care so much oh, about it, but like now you're know. you're caring about it. Yeah. I think kids do that to you because you know they touch everything. Like just yeah. the one foot radius around a light switch just is, gets greasy mm-hmm. over time. It's like, would you stop touching the wall? Stop. Yeah. You know, why, I have, have, to why, do you collect... close, why do you have to close my car door by the window or even by the paint? It's got uh, a handle. It's got a handle. Touch the handle. Yeah. That's just a constant battle in my house. I have to confiscate iPads so that I can clean them off. And I'm talking like scrub because it's, it's just caked. Oh, ours is gross. I have to get out like serious cleaner on these iPads. Break out the steel wool. And I can just spray them <laughs> with Lysol and you know, say a COVID prayer to the COVID gods before I even touch it, <laughs> that I'm not going to get sick. Okay, let's get into this. Um, these are not really numbered, which is weird. This is just, their website's terrible. Is CIO still even a thing? As a title? Nah, I just, I don't know. It's just, it's such a, a horrible magazine. Okay, here we go. Choosing the wrong methodology. All software development methodologies have fans who are passionately devoted to the rules they define that define their favorite way for organizing a team. The problem is often in choosing the right one for a team, by the way, don't choose scrum. Uh, One big mistake is imposing rules from the top. If coders, coders, hardliners are big believers in a different approach, they'll often grouse and complain with cynical disdain if they're shoehorned into using another. 
Another mistake is letting programmers in the trenches choose their favorite because they may not understand what's best for the whole thing. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, John. <laughs> I was told that Agile was about self-organizing and empowered teams. But yeah. this says, <clears throat> CIO Magazine says it's a mistake to let programmers in the trenches. That just, that sounds derogatory. That, that's another, that's, again, that's it's a, a hardliner thing. Uh, it's a mistake to let them choose their favorite because they don't understand what's best for them. Only the executives know what's best for the engineering team that's it's, actually having to get shit done and make make good on broken on promises that no one agreed to and really crappy tooling and stupid subscriptions that were purchased for them that they're that they're that's being forced on them that they have to use mm-hmm. and now you're uh, telling them how they have to work okay well Good luck with that. This is actually this is just going to be. This is not seven sins of software. This is seven reasons why CIO is a horrible, horrible magazine. I, I, I've only read the first one, and I, I'm not read, I have not read this article yet. That's but low I, hanging but fruit, I bet though. You, methodology. I, mean, I know. The, 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 you could you could pay so some obvious. fancy consultant like five hundred dollars an hour, and this is the list he would come back with. Yeah, this is very lame. All right. Do you have any comments on this? Let's talk about choosing a methodology. What are your thoughts on methodology, John? I mean, I understand why they exist, just like patterns exist. But the problem is, is if you be, if you subscribe to the methodology like a cult, meaning you prescribe to every, mm. you strictly subscribe to every part part of it, and the ceremony, like right. you're in church. Yeah, you have to say and do all the right things at the right moment. Right. For the right amount of time, you're you're free. To do what you want as long as it's this way. I know. You know. Yeah. In fact, I, I believe that we should incorporate a confessional into our uh, into our development process so that you can uh, so you can ask for forgiveness for, the, for the, your the, bugs. Uh, what's what's that called in Scrum? The <laughs> the retrospective. The retrospective. Yeah. I'm about to do one of those this week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I I know. I think I've said this for a while, but I feel like you should have as little process as you can get away with. And the better your team is, the less process you need. And so just calibrate that. Well, I think you know? what happens for most companies is they they hit a wall. Like, they just hit this wall of chaos. Ooh. What? Continue. I, I love that. I love that. <laughs> Where just everything is a disarray. And so that, so as a, as a management team, you decide, okay, we need to find some way to organize this and fix this. What can we do? And that's when the topic of methodologies come out. And that's when people start, you know, socializing these, these different things and the company picks it and they subscribe to it and they do a, a concerted effort to try it and make it work. Yeah. Um, and, and, and in the beginning they're, they're very prescriptive about it. They're trying to follow the methodology because they're told if you do it this way, it's going to work and you keep doing it, hoping it's going to work. Um, and, it and I think to, to us, to its credit, to a certain extent, it does work because when you're coming from chaos to organization, you do see some improvement. You can you can start to see some things flowing and working better. Um, but I think I think it's a stopgap measure, and I think you just need to pick the parts that work for you and and just kind of keep going with that. If that's a, if that's even I love that. I, I was, that. I've heard people call that like the shopping cart method. Yeah. Like take the things yeah. from off the shelf that will actually work for your team and yeah. leave that stuff behind. And I think a lot of people are flexible in that way, but then you'll have one or two that are like, "That's not Scrum." And they'll be very, and I'm picking on Scrum, but they're very, they want to stick to that methodology, and they want to tell you that you're not sticking to that methodology if you do X, Y, Z. Of course, 
a lot of the experts, because I've read many of their books, and these started reading these books 20 years ago, shortly after the uh, Agile Manifesto and that meeting in the mountains, whatever the all the old white guys did and came down with their stone tablet that told us all how we need to work. Um, but that's, that's the odd thing about it. They actually didn't tell us how to work. What they told us was, here's some things to think about, and here's maybe a set of values. And take that and f- and plug that and create a process out of that that works for your team or create some framework that's adaptable. Mm-hmm. And and I think the good methodologies, and you know what? I've read some of Eric, not Eric Evans, uh, Mike, uh, well, who's the, uh, the scrum, the scrum guy. Um, is it Eric Evans? I forget. Um, and today, no, it's Mike something. Hang on, I have to look this up. Uh, uh, Mike Cohn. Is it Mike Cohn? Yeah. Um, even, even he will say like, you not, you're not supposed to take this like as scripture. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to adapt it. Of course, you know, I think some people have different, you know, uh, ideas on what's acceptable adapting and what's, uh, you know, you're getting too far off the reservation type of thing. Yeah. To me, I'm just like, I don't want a reservation. I want, you know, as as good of a team as I can get and as, as minimal communication. This is weird to say this. The right communication points, mm-hmm. but as minimal as possible. Yeah, because when I get you're that. when yeah. you're when you're now you have to talk, you have to plan, you have to like design things, and you have to do. But like the more you're talking, sometimes the less you're actually getting done. Yes. and it's and it's hard to know yes. where when you've crossed that line because it's a very sloppily drawn line. Mm-hmm. But I that's went through why, that recently. That's why I think adaptation should be built into it because you know every week or so, every couple of weeks, like the team can talk about like. I think we cross that line. I, I feel like we're kind of meeting too much. And then and someone will be like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of think we are. Like, turns out we really didn't. But but it might be the other direction, too. It might be like, God, we really went down the wrong direction for too far on this. Kind of went down a rabbit hole. And I feel like if we just would have had another conversation about it, we would have nipped that in the bud and wouldn't have had so much rework, you know? So it's, yeah, you, you can't, a book can't tell your team exactly where to draw those lines. You have to figure that out. Yeah. And, and, and it, it totally comes depends from... on the experience of the team, <clears throat> yeah. the diversity of the team. And sometimes diversity is good, and sometimes, you know, diversity is – different types of diversity. I'm not talking about, you know, all this political stuff. I'm talking about, right. you know, if you have a couple of people who are really senior, a couple of people who are really junior, that, that kind of diversity. Yeah. Um, then you're, you have to cater to the whole team. You have to strike some kind of balance. Yeah. And I, I think learning it is making those mistakes. That's the way you learn and gain that experience. So you have to – you have to make the mistake of having too many meetings and go, oh, yeah. That's that's where we cross the line. Exactly. We learn from that. You have to make those mistakes. Yeah. And you fact, can't you avoid should... them. You have to make them to learn. Yeah. And and hopefully the, the magnitude of those mistakes get less over time. But if you're not always making those mistakes, then you're probably gone off. You've probably gone off, off course a little bit. Yeah. You just don't know it. Right. Because you haven't recognized the mistake. Because <laughs> you think you're not making them. Right. <laughs> and I, I don't think it's – and when we talk about methodology, I don't think it's limited to process – because I think a perfect example, which echoes this entire conversation, is domain-driven design. I mean, because domain-driven design, at its simplicity, at its simplicity, is not a set of patterns or development framework. It's it's a domain for language on how you communicate with each other. Is how it started and, and what it was. Oh, it's all about yeah the words we use the words and how, we use. We, how we communicate and their meaning yeah and, and how we communicate them and how we make the system match that so that we can communicate with the system the same way we're communicating with humans yes but as i got more and more into to 
to DDD, because I hate saying that. <laughs> I, I was faced with this prospect, and I, I, kept, I kept asking you questions about it and saying, I'm in this, like, dependency injection hell when I, because I'm trying to learn this in a real world. Like, I'm trying to apply everything I've ever learned in my entire career on how to build large systems and what, what works and what doesn't. And I think it has its place, and I think there are patterns and things within it that do work. But if you just subscribe to it strictly, your system ends up so big and so bloated and you have – it's so complex in the way it tries to communicate and the way it tries to cross boundaries or the way it tries not to cross boundaries and isolate itself and have all these different injection points that it gets kind of crazy. And it's almost mind-boggling as a just one yeah. person just trying to navigate this. By the way, I don't I don't know if you saw this, but I'll just – give a shout out and, and mention it, which we put it in the show notes, but Brett, a uh, friend of the show, Brett Barlow, he did a talk at one of the Dreamins about a couple months ago on uh, dependency injection with Apex and stuff. Good stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to the next one. So we got to move mm-hmm. around number two now. Uh, the next sin is ignoring scalability. To ignore scalability? <sighs> It's a good question. Or That's a good ig- question. Should, yeah, ignore yeah. <laughs> scalability to your detriment. Yeah, let's find out. Okay, so some software development issues can be fixed later, but building an application that scales efficiently to handle millions or billions of events isn't one of them. Creating effective code with no bottlenecks that surprises everyone when the app finally runs at full scale requires plenty of forethought and high-level leadership. It's not something that can be fixed later with a bit of targeted coding and virtual duct tape. Okay, so they're saying don't ignore scalability. Now, there's a very – this is an Ask John. There's a very dangerous dangerous flip side to this coin, mm-hmm. which is premature optimization. Yeah, okay. You know where I was going with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just, but I was nervous because <laughs> I was I, I, the whole, as soon as you brought it up, that was the one thing I wanted to say was the premature optimization thing is you can – I've written plenty of things that I thought I needed to write in a scalable way. And and more often than not, it made it over, overly complex. Yep. Um, because you're you're moving your logic outside of the transaction, which means you have to develop a whole new feedback mechanism to your user. Because you've pulled it out of the transaction, there's no immediate feedback on whether or not something happened or if something did happen, if it's something they can correct. And now you're having to create a whole new communication channel back to the user on something that may yeah. or may not have happened. Or something for someone to monitor to make sure something did happen or when something does not happen, that they can go in and correct that. So designing for scalability is a bit dangerous because you're, 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 in essence, you're moving a lot of that workload off into separate processes that aren't direct interactions. And, and then this is, this is a tough one because you do need to think about scalability and you, need, you do need to consider the, the possibilities. Um, but you need, to un, you need to understand your order of magnitude. And sorry, let me let me clarify that okay. when I when I when I said that statement, I was really thinking about the Apex world and um, scaling batch processes with automation. So your trigger mechanisms of handling batch cycles or offloading those into cubicles or offloading those into batch jobs. This might be broader topic of scalability of you know distributing your application across regions and all that kind of stuff. That, that's also, and I, I can't think of what like the metaphor, but that, that's another thing that, that Salesforce has taught a whole generation of of uh, hardliners is is because <laughs> obviously Salesforce is trying to protect their f- platform, so they're mm-hmm. very very strict about how much you can throw at it, right? Right. And so, 
that's fine. I get it. And, and it's good to think about things. Like, it doesn't matter whether it's Apex or whether you're writing Java that's calling out to a database. Like, are you doing a query in a loop that's going across a network, potentially across the internet to a database in a loop? You know, a, a, a tight loop that's, uh, you know, could you could, you know, loop through 10,000 times? I mean, sh- sure, you need to think about stuff like that. But on the other hand, yeah, again, Salesforce is, then <laughs> they've created this, you know, army of hardliners out there who, probably now just it's in it's just been mutated into their gna to prematurely optimize everything mm-hmm. i'll yeah. give you i wanted to give you a uh, a little anecdote um this you know when kind of when i was first getting into apache camel a few years ago um in, in a loop it, it was effectively was a loop these are you know you with the camel you define like what they call routes integration routes is basically this like the path that you know, whether it's like a timer went off or um, something hit your, an, uh, uh, you know, you're, you've got like an API that you're, um, that you're hosting and something hit that API and that can, plugs right in the camel into a route. So, you know, and routes can be like they can call other routes and they can do loops and all kinds of, um, you know, all the enterprise integration patterns basically are defined, you know, in these routes. And I'm, I'm in a loop. I'm like, I'm loop. I don't know. I can't, I have no idea what the exact scenario was, but, you know, reading from some source, which ha- would have a lot of records and I'm looping through each one of those records and I'm doing a transform on it and then writing the result to like a file, probably, probably a CSV file or something. Mm-hmm. And every time it gets into that loop, I'm, I'm calling the camel file component and it's writing it. And I got to thinking, you know, so when it writes that file and then it's done with that step in the route, does it, does it close like the, that file output stream and the file handle? And then on the very next iteration of the loop, which this is doing tens of thousands of times, it's then, Opening it, getting mm-hmm. a new fi- handle on the file, and creating a new output stream, and then writing to that, and then closing it. Like, is it? And I was, I immediately was like, you know, again, as, I mean, I've been, I've been programming for longer than what I like to say, but also, you know, I've been, I've been trained by Salesforce, and this is very concerning to me. Mm-hmm. And so I got on the forum and I asked about it, and then, and I think the answer I got was something like, "Well, have you, have you run it?" <laughs> I was like, I haven't run it yet. I'm almost, you know, I didn't say this, but I'm almost scared to because, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm usually get slapped in the back of the head by, um, you know, Chris Peterson when I do that. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's probably Daniel Daniel Bollinger, but and I just I don't want them virtually slapping me in the back of the head. I don't like that. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> I, I can so relate yeah. to that. Yeah. And, and but the guy asked me, he's like, you know, did did you try? And I'm like, well, no. I guess I will. And. You know, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be slow, and my computer's going to start smoking, and and I still don't know because I haven't dug through that part of the source code of Camel yet. I have no idea what it's doing. Maybe it is opening a file every time. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But I processed through like I forget what it was. It's probably like a million million records, maybe, and mm-hmm. writing and writing them all back out to disk, and it is had zero impact it was it was not even if i made a list of the thousand things i need to optimize in this integration that wouldn't have made the list i mean i mean probably exaggerating but that, yeah. it just didn't make the list it was not right. a problem it was incredibly fast yeah yeah so no i get that and i and so sometimes you should ignore scalability back to the thing yeah but, i mean but again you know this is this is no i mean this is that's my other problem i've been a consultant too long it's like everything is it depends and it, and it yeah. really does. But, like, you do need to know your order of magnitude. Like, you know, and you maybe maybe one day you will have, you know, you will be at web scale. You'll have millions of users at once. 
But what if you want to get 500 users at once peak and you've blown so much of your company's budget? And on, time. Yeah, on building this out. You've you Kubernetes all the things and, you know, you've got YAML coming out of every orifice in your body, you know, like, yeah. I hope, hope you don't go out of business because you've spent so much money over engineering this before you can even get some users. Have you, do you even have product market fit? Do you, is there any, is there any reason to believe? I know the CEO and they you know, what in the marketing people, they, boy, they're, they're very confident, you know, but hmm, <laughs> <laughs> we sure about that? <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't know if this relates to it, but I actually, was thinking about this yesterday because I was watch- I was on YouTube and I was watching um I was watch I liked I, I'm a nerd <laughs> I, no, liked, I like not, to watch not not you John I like to watch videos about, about people who are learning how to program like they'll do their like a uh, one year programming Godot or something or one year programming you know from scratch to learning how to be a game programmer type stuff and I was watching this guy and he was like I it was COVID I got bored I decided to learn how to program a game and he's using Pi Game. And he he lists the lines of code of what it took to build something. So he built like a simple pawn game or something. It's like 198 code lines of code. And I'm like, really? That's it? I'm like, my 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 trigger that I just wrote the other day that handles us a few database interactions and does some <laughs> business logic is like 5,000 lines long. Yeah, and, and 4,500 of those lines are just getting things in and out of maps and lists. Yeah, it's got like inheritance <laughs> and, and interfaces and dependency injection, and it's it's got this oh, framework no, built around no. it. And I'm like, and this, this guy's doing Pong on it. Yeah. <laughs> and then does Space Invaders is like 500 lines of code. I'm like, what? Space Invaders? <laughs> <laughs> He did an RPG one. Is like finally got up to a thousand lines, like a turn-based uh, RPG fighting game, and I'm like a thousand lines. I'm like, really? <laughs> what am I doing wrong here as a developer? Does I'm that like, include import statements, though? It's Pi Game. Pi Game is pretty bare bones. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you're, I, you're do. It gives you like a loop yeah. for your interactions, and you just got to manage that loop. Um, it's pretty bare bones. All right, let's move on. The next sin. Where what is this? The third sin? Okay. Falling for the latest trend. Mm. Yeah. This is this is this is a real thing too. The software developers can be notoriously we are, boy, squirrel and the shiny. Oh, we're yeah. oh my god, we're all you know, hacker news and our you know our, oh, what was that our game that programming. Took, took years. Uh what was that game? Oh fam- Duke Nukem. Duke Yeah, Duke Nukem or yes. whatever it was. Yeah, it was Duke Nukem. Duke Nukem forever, I forget. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it was forever because it took them forever to build it. <laughs> They were they had the new shiny. Every time a new game engine came out, they're like, "We're scratching everything. We're building it on this new engine." Did you? Is that true? Did you? Yes. Read, you read the backstory? Of that? That's okay. really true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, anyway, maybe it's maybe it's a new kind of database that offers more complex queries. Maybe it's a new programming language that fix all the bugs caused by the old one. Yeah, um, I I think I was more susceptible to this when I was younger. Now, if anything, I'm just I feel like I'm. I probably should pay attention to the shiny more. I'm I'm just like, no, I I know it works. I like my tools. I'm really efficient at them. I get business done. Um I, I still get caught off guard by the shiny every so often. This is this is what can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. This is why it also is actually I think back to diversity of a team. That's like it's important. Yeah. And it's actually important, I think, to have some junior people. Because us seniors in in many ways, we're seniors. <laughs> um, we can, we do our set in our ways, and we can just completely yeah. miss stuff because no, we do. our our brains are not as plastic anymore. It's not so much 
not even just missing stuff. I mean, I've been a solo developer primarily for so long, and now I'm part of this larger team, and I've learned to let things go. And you know what it's like is when I was single, you remember me, how how things had to be very neat, very organized, very clean, and how almost OCD I was about no, it. What are you talking about when you're single? Nothing has changed in that regard, John. No, it has. Okay. I'm, I'm a little bit more mellower about that stuff. Okay. I, I let a lot of it go since I've had kids and, you know, messes are inevitable. Disorganization is inevitable. I can't just sit there and yell that the kids' toys are on the floor. Now it's the dog's toys, but... You know, I think you mellow out, and I feel like that's kind of what I've done with programming, because I've been very meticulous about how the code looks, how it's named, and I spend a lot of time on it. Like, I'm, you know, almost, like, inefficient in a way, because I'm I'm trying to dot all these things and make everything look a certain way. And now that I've been exposed to a, to a larger team, I see their mess, and I compare it to my mess, and I'm like, my mess isn't as bad as their mess. I'm good. You know? I'm, I'm good with, with how this works, or... I'm not as picky, you know, like when we talk about brackets and if statements, how I, I prefer the brackets to be there. I don't yeah. want the if statement with the one indented line because I just think that's very bug prone, but I see it so much in code. Um, even even the efficiency part of it, like the people were just pulling things out of a map instead of pulling the, the object out of the map and then referencing that variable to access properties on that. Mm, oh, they were that. just calling the map using the get function on the map and then calling the function. And... Yeah, maybe maybe it's not as efficient, but in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter to the processing in, in terms of just processing. It didn't affect speed, hardly any. Yeah. And yeah, maybe readability, I, I prefer it differently, but it worked. And so I'm, I'm going to sit there and be meticulous and make them write, rewrite all that code because I don't like the way it looks. I feel like I missed the point on this no, note. No, I don't know. See, I told you, one beer and I'm... Yeah. Well, well here, we're not done. Um, let's see. Next one. Retaining too much data. Oh, that's, that's no longer a, a thing anymore. You can't have enough data. You need them for your models. Okay. So programmers are natural pack rats. They love to store information in case it's needed in the future. Keep it around because you never know when we'll need it. That can be a recipe for a security, a security leak. Ah. Oh. I mean, true, data. but now we're encouraged to keep all that data. Well, this is assuming, I mean, yeah, do developers typically have data? I mean, most. No, developers do not. And they, they should shouldn't. not. They shouldn't. They should not. Unless yeah. they're like, and the thing is, like, if you're like a, like an, you know, like some kind of data engineer of some sort, like integrations or like data transformations, migration, that kind of stuff, I mean, you're naturally going to come into contact with data. Yes. Yeah. So, so maybe from that perspective, and I'm, yeah, I'm probably guilty of this a little bit to some degree sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone is, I mean, we're all guilty of holding on to data that we shouldn't because we're, we're afraid that we're going to need it. And sometimes it's reinforced because it does turn out we need it. Yeah. And that just reinforces the, the behavior. But yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly risky to retain, retain that data. Before we move on to the next one. Hmm. This is a. Uh, I might work this you even one. make old man noises when you open a beer. I know it kind of hurt my fingernail a little bit. I don't want cans. This uh, is a, an India Pell Lager. I think it's from False Idol here in the like kind of. I think they're in the H E B area, which yeah. for non DFW folks is the her, her, is it Hurst Euless Bedford or useless as we used to call it. Useless. Useless. 
All right. India Pell Lager. Is that the same thing as a cold IPA, John? I don't know. Some people say it is. They're very close. I'm not even talking to the mic. Yeah. Sorry. All right. This next one. This is an interesting one. Um, outsourcing the wrong work. So the debate over building or buying software is a time-honored one with no definitive conclusion. Still, software developers often choose poorly. Well, it's usually the managers that choose poorly. Let's be fair about this. CIO Magazine, <laughs> which you're responsible for creating a, a generations of terrible managers. That's besides the point, I guess. Maybe there's a perfectly good solution at a good price, and they are too prideful to set aside their custom stack with its – I mean – with its expensive in-house team. I mean, that is true. Like, Wait a minute, what is this topic? Yeah, just outsourcing the wrong things. Not Maybe not outsourcing when you should and outsourcing things you shouldn't and whatever. Does it mean like software or? Um, I think that's the assumption here. Clouds or yeah, whatever? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the build or buy debate, you know, like, should okay. you, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, the whole get attachment to your own code is is undeniable. Some people are better at that than others. I, I'm probably in the middle of that spectrum. And we all know where you are, John. My code. My code. My code. I'm evolving. Are you? Yeah. Well, you're on a bigger team. You kind of have to. It changes your perspective a little bit. Well, I'm, our economics are different. And our liabilities are different. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, it's, it's different when you're at a company and you're trying to solve problems and you can make those analysis analyses and say, okay, we, we can build this or we can use this vendor and these are the trade-offs. When you're an implementation partner with Salesforce, this company's already signed on to spend a ton of money, and then you have to go in there and make the case for them to spend more money on, say, another vendor, or to build or, it or custom, just, or to do these things. Or maybe so that, you, I mean, you divert that budget you have on that project to an to that's a that's a legitimate thing to yeah. to some kind of uh, outsourcing certain parts of it. Or but they're very different conversations because as an, as an implement, implementer, uh, typically the client sold that that. The, what they bought will cover their needs. Yeah. And a lot of times in the implementation cycle, through discovery, you learn more about the business. I'm not saying Salesforce did anything shady and said that. I'm just saying that's the perspective that you have to overcome. Yeah. But as an internal reason. How does this come back to Salesforce? How are you tying this to Salesforce so much? How do I? Now, are, you, are you tying this to Salesforce amount? Did you say Salesforce? Yeah. What does that have to do with Salesforce? The build versus buy? Yeah. Oh, like buying a CRM versus building your own CRM? No, you bought the CRM, but now you need to integrate it with some other system, or now you need to maybe, maybe you need a marketing platform, and you don't you didn't know that, or okay. you bought the Salesforce one, but the Salesforce one doesn't do this, or it doesn't do that, or okay. you know, there's all the different yeah. reasons. No, I I think we I'm sure people appreciate you tying this back to Salesforce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sorry, I'm being, no, I'm being, sorry, <laughs> I, I'm actually being completely sincere. <laughs> um. Yeah, that that's tough. Uh, you know, we we get a little bit of ownership and pride in in what we built, but also I'll tell you what, um, outsourcing is hard, hard, and it's well, outsourcing and, and, custom and, build or outsourcing just packaged software. Honestly, anything. Okay, because you you almost whatever you're outsourcing, you almost better have that capability in house. Because if you don't, then you don't know how to, how to manage the organization you outsource to. And you don't know how, to, know how to check them, keep them honest, give them the right information, give them the right context, set the right expectations. If you don't know how to build an in-house, then outsourcing it is is actually even harder. It, it, it almost reminds me of like, you know, you go to the bank and you're like, hey, I need, you know, I want to do this thing. I need a hundred grand, a loan, please. And they're like, oh, okay, uh, sure. 
um, do you have a hundred grand that we can put up as collateral for? And you're like, well, no, if, if I had that, I wouldn't ask you for the loan. Well, same thing with outsourcing. Like you almost shouldn't outsource it unless you can build it yourself. You're just for whatever reason, choosing not to. I've just seen f- far more outsourcing projects fail. And, and this is just my, all my data, you know, series of anecdotes in my life far more often fail than succeed. We've seen companies that you and I both work, did work for that failed probably because of uh, not managing outsourcing properly. I, th- I think, uh, I right? think am I right about that? I, I agree. And yeah. I think, I think that is the clarification I want to make, because I don't think everybody can be <clears throat> subject matter experts at everything. I mean, you can be a bakery, although even though back in the day, CIO magazine would say every company is a tech company. Well, that's just not true. You know, companies exist to do certain things. Yeah. That doesn't mean they have to be a software company. What is Salesforce? Speaking of uh, tying it back to Salesforce. Oh, we know. We know. Actually, I know. There's, a, there's one right answer to this. What is it? What kind of company is Salesforce? It's, a, it's not a CRM company. No. It's not a software company. No software, even though they're the biggest software company in Japan. It's a marketing company. They're a customer company, John. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Should have known. <laughs> you should have. That was a softball. Had to man. catch up on my trails. <laughs> yeah. You get back on that trail later. Yep. What was uh, I trying to say? I was trying to make a point. Uh, I'm sorry. I interrupted. It's fine. Let's move on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, avoiding testing is another sin. Yeah. That is, that is probably a. Avoiding testing. Yeah. Effective software developers and their managers know that testing is a constant challenge and just as part of the part of the job as writing recursive code or designing an elegant data structure. Oh, that overlaps. That does overlap with what I wanted to talk about. Testing should be included from the very beginning because unit tests and integration tests are vital to ensuring code stays viable throughout the development process. It almost sounds like they Googled, like, what are the types of tests? <laughs> it's like <laughs> unit tests and integration tests. All right. What's um, okay? What did you want to say about this? It could open up a can of worms. Um, it might mean we not get to other stuff, or maybe it does. No, we have to get to other stuff. Okay. Well, then you can be short with your answers. Okay. <laughs> that's fine so where i'm at today we do a lot of testing we yeah. have what we call qa testing which is a, a quality engineering testing which validates the stuff that we wrote before it gets to our uat testers who yeah. test for so the qe is testing for uh usually the spec but they're testing for quality they're testing to make sure that what we've built works and that it works with what everything else in the system. Okay. And UAT is very specific on the functionality and possibly some regression testing, making sure that everything around it works. Yep. Um, but we're light on unit testing. Like we do barely the bare minimum to get it. You're speaking my to language. To get it to ship. I, I, you know, I, years ago, I, I kind of moved on from, <laughs> not that I don't do any unit testing, but it's not the main driver. Yeah. And it bothered me when I first started. I was like, why don't we have more testing? Yeah. Well, it turns out, as I tried to improve our testing framework, I can't create enough data before Salesforce throws an issue at me yeah. because I'm doing CPQ here. Mm. So if I want to do a full regression on something that's low level at the CPQ level, I have to create a lot of data. I have to create accounts and customers and pricing rules and and products and subscriptions and contracts and contract lines and, and blah, blah, blah. And Daniel Bollinger slaps you on the back of your head. Yeah. <laughs> So I can't even get a full graph of data before the system just runs out of things like queries and things like that because we have some automation built in. So every time I'm creating this data, all those automations are running. 
And sure, we have some parts where we can bypass that or or do the CPQ disable its automation processes, yeah. but that's only half the story. And that's, that's also fraught with its own issues. And I'm, I'm, so I'm starting to build this perspective. I'm like, we have a we have a good amount of t- functional testing. We'll call it. Well, that's what it is. But functional testing. We have multiple layers. Did what happens in a world where unit testing falls out of favor? Just bear with me on this argument. And Salesforce has built the entire platform on saying you have to do test coverage. Is there a way for Salesforce to turn off that requirement and say, you know what? The world has moved on. We're not doing unit testing anymore. No, but let's be clear. What 99% of us hardliners do when, when we're testing Apex code is not unit testing. Sure. But, I mean, beside that argument, what happens in a world where – and I'm just saying this for argument. I'm not saying it's true because I do – I can follow this up with a reason for unit testing, and that's – that's this next paradigm that I want to talk about. But what if, what, what if in, in, in the world of development, we decide as, as a community that unit testing and integration testing is ineffective and we don't want to do it anymore? But you lost me on the integration testing, but I think it's very effective. Okay. <laughs> Automated integration testing yeah. is effective. Automating integration okay. testing. Absolutely. That, I mean, to me, that's – for the kind of work I do is the most effective – form of really almost UAT testing and but particularly uh, regression testing. Yeah. Well, this other paradigm, which I'll be brief on, is is the CICD, I guess I'm going to say paradigm or, or whatever structure. Okay. And that in order to move fast and with feature flags and things like that, you, you need testing because you're almost kind of admitting that you're not going to do as much functional testing. You're going to be moving so fast and pieces of that system are going to end up in production that you kind of want your automated testing to validate it. At least give it the sanity test that nothing's broken, nothing's catastrophic is going to fail, that the thing you injected into the system is going to break all these other things. Yeah, it's almost like, it's almost like smoke testing. Like, right. And you need that kind of automated test because if you're going to be moving fast with CICD and you're going to be moving components, granular components, not necessarily entire modules, but granular components hidden behind feature flags, you kind of want it to go through, but you want to make sure that there's some sanity there. And automated testing is is a great solution to that. Yeah, Because you're not really going to test everything until you get all your components in place, and then you'll go through the formality of, say, in a test environment, turn on that feature flag and f- actually test that. Mm-hmm. And then you can say, okay, we're good to turn that flag on in production and see how that goes. Yep. So that's where the my brain kind of went... Uh, I don't want to do testing anymore, but I want to do this. And what makes that kind of work is testing, automated testing. I mean, so yeah, there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Last one. Understanding the power of planning. I guess it's a sin to not under, uh, oh, sorry. Underestimating the power of planning. That's the sin. If you know they didn't have such a bad font on these titles, I wouldn't be screwing up. Papyrus. So much. <laughs> it's like the weirdest font. Underestimating the power of planning. So most code requires some devotion to planning. Alas, most coders often just want to jump right in and start machine gunning code. Wow, do they? Is this is this is another? Is this like a trope or a? This is uh, what's the word? This is a, this is another slander, like. I don't know, man. I I worked with kind of a range of software developers, and I, I I I mean, I get that. I'm sure there's some people like that, but 
most of them, at least the good ones, don't jump right in and start machine gunning code. In fact, what they start doing is they start asking questions. Uh-huh. They start asking questions, and usually lots of questions, and those answers lead to more questions. Yeah. Uh, I just don't like the choice of words there. Yeah. One of my friends tells me that it took him several years to recognize that the best step is to stop, plan, test the plans, and then plan some more. Well, they might not have gone, might not have gone out of business by then. Uh, writing plans may seem tedious, but it can be ten times faster to try out ideas when thinking abstractly. I mean, are you trying them out? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it says he's now a very successful manager. That sounds like a bullshit story. Sounds like someone who got really good at pretending like they're doing work. <clears throat> yeah. By writing all these documents. Planning also means including the input from the other t- other teams and stakeholders. I agree. That's good. They're going to be the ones using the code in the future, so spending time, blah, 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 blah. Anyway. I mean, from that perspective, yes. I mean, yeah. you want to interact with your business. You want to get the requirements from the business, and you want to get their, their acceptance criteria from the business. You know, what do you expect to see the system to do? Everything else is up to engineering. Yeah. So, yeah, you plan ahead, get all the proper requirements, get the acceptance criteria, and then let engineering figure out how to build it. And they can do their own planning. And, you know, with with modern, just everything from, from cloud to, you know, containers and how fast everything is and all this tooling we have that's great now and automation, <clears throat> sometimes it's better just to plan just a little bit and then go do a just a first quick iteration of something. Yeah. I mean that's where sprints that, that, that's where sprints shines well, in and, terms of development. I mean you carve out a piece of the system, you build it in a short amount of time and you test that piece of functionality. Yeah, I'm not even talking about maybe something that's like, you know, a half a day or a day. Like that can be so much oh, sure. more valuable than yeah. planning for 2 weeks. I mean the the decision constipation that we've all seen um yeah, I've done that. I've done just the quick prototype. Like, uh, I have an idea that I think might work. Let me let me try it out. I'll prototype yeah. it out. I'll demo it, and we'll see if this is the direction we want to go. And yeah. I I've, I've had those conversations with clients and saying, "Hey, this is a prototype. It's not production ready. Yeah, this is just something that I think we can talk to." And I think I think particularly like UI stuff, it makes so much sense. Yeah, because just the way human brains work, and they can't really tell you what they need or how it should work, but boy, they know it when they see it. Oh yeah, we we used to do it's like porn. Going back to the implementation right? side, you know of it things. when you see it. Yeah, going back to the implementation <laughs> things, we used to write documents of what we wanted to build. No one was getting it from the business side of things, so we prototyped it, and we found we got much more engagement, much better feedback when they could see us point and click at something, and they say that's going to work or that's not going to work. Yep. All right, John. Well, those were the seven sins. Thank you, CIO, for a mm, okay. This is what it is. Um, <laughs> let's let's do um, Stefan's okay article. So a friend of the show, Stefan Chandler-Garcia, wrote a nice uh, article on the Salesforce Developers blog called Inside the Einstein Trust Layer. We've talked about this, John, in the past uh, couple episodes, how uh, this this seems like uh, – you know, so I, I will just back up for a second and say all this AI and particularly the, the, these large language models – you know, the kind of the chatter is like, <laughs> no one's making money on this. Like, OpenAI is not making money. Facebook's not making money. Google's not making like no Microsoft's not making money. No one's making money on this yet. And the question is, will anyone make money? And it may be the 
mean, not the not the organizations that have done all the work to develop this kind of low level machine learning stuff, but it's the downstream or the derivative products that are going to figure out how to make money. And I think Salesforce is in that camp. I mean, I know Salesforce does. I mean, Salesforce has you know their kind of research lab, and they've definitely hired some some great computer scientists and and um, some of these machine learning experts. Um, they've even produced their own uh, large language model, which has some unique attributes to it, which is open source, which is really cool. Get on Salesforce for that. But Salesforce is not. Uh, I mean, I certainly don't think they're they're not in they're not viewed as like a, one of these top tier you know, AI companies. But not yet. That really doesn't matter. You know what matters? Gartner is making money and Gartner. <laughs> and if you make money, then you can write checks oh, to you Gartner. Just Salesforce a year. They'll be <laughs> yeah. on the top, quor- oh, they will. top corner quadrant of, of AI. Right. Um, but no, Salesforce is, you know, they're, it's clear that they are, um, they're going to try to figure out how to make money out of this. And uh, they're doing some, they, they are building some unique kind of derivative. And I don't mean that de- derogatory. I mean, uh, va- oh, let value added. That's probably a better term some unique kind of value-added applications for AI where there, you know... There already are. Somehow... The value-add is the trust layer. Well, it is. Well, let's get into that. Okay. Um, Now, this is... uh, Everyone should read this. Um, It really gives you some context on how this works at Salesforce. And and it's... it's, I think Stefan did a good job of, you know, explaining everything from whether you're, you know, a a user of Salesforce, you know, using it to generate some, you know, uh, customer service responses or if you're a marketing person generating some you know marketing content or whatever d- down to the hardliner who's um Can you, you know stop using hardliner oh really is this a bad thing now i win the bet keep use if you keep socializing it like that no that's not the bet that's not the bet don't change the bet john <laughs> thousands of people know you're trying what to the take be- back the thousands word of people you're trying know to take the back the word i'm <laughs> yeah i am <laughs> um but no, like people, you know, like uh, software engineers who are, who are working at ISVs that are that are using some of the low level uh, APIs and things that Salesforce is exposing to incorporate uh, generative AI into your like ISV products and or just like custom applications that you're building in your org. Mm-hmm. So Stefan covers kind of all of that uh, in this article, but uh, it's worth a read. Uh, I did I highlighted a couple things. Did you re- you read this right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have some context here. One thing he says here is, uh, I'm just, this is kind of in the middle of a whole section here, but extending existing APIs is the fastest and most common strategy for getting started with LLMs. And I mentioned that, and of course, it's near the top there, because I don't really, I'm not super clear what he means by that. Um, and maybe maybe we need to read more and come back to that. But it's all about – he actually links to this other – their previous blog post that was called Building Apps with LLMs and Einstein, Extending Existing APIs. I wonder if that more is referring to like consuming. I mean I don't know if that's in contrast like building your own LLM. I would think so because I, I think that's kind of okay. what's alluded to in, in this. Yeah, maybe I'm just – maybe I'm overthinking that and it's just – yeah. Because, you know, OpenAI and BARD, they all, they all have, you know, APIs. And now mm-hmm. Salesforce has APIs that you can – Consume. I would maybe the maybe that's maybe that's word clicks in my brain more. Cons, you're consuming those APIs. Well, I think by the, by using the term extend, what they're saying because there there are tools that allow you to build prompts 
there's tools to let you um, design models, um, which I haven't gotten into, but there's tools for, for, for those type of things, which is, would be an extension of what's already pre-built. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and by build, I believe what that means is giving it additional context for your specific business or access to your specific data sources. The other thing in here that he points out right at the top is um, says, you know, the Einstein One platform makes it easy for self-source developers to build apps powered by LLMs. It provides a secure entry point into LLM offerings from many of our AI partners. Now, I think, I think they're only starting. I think they're only exposing um, the OpenAI's model to us at this point. But I mean, further down in the article, he talks about how. Um, B-Y-O-M? Well, it's bring your yeah, yeah, and and so you know, like with Vertex AI, and what's what's Amazon's uh, SageMaker? Um, yeah, yeah, you can build your own model that's really custom to kind of what you need, and plug that in. Now, you have, I think you have to build it on one of these big cloud platforms, but but they also I think they're doing Anthropic maybe, and maybe a couple others that Salesforce is, I think, working on offering as so you mm-hmm. can kind of like pick your back end almost. And maybe it, maybe you can bounce it off multiple or something. I don't know. I mean, the problem with that is, I guess you're gonna. You're, I think this is pay by the usage, <laughs> so, yeah. so careful with that. But but that's actually really cool. I like mean, yo, dog, no, you I like just, models. Here's models for your models. Exactly. Well, <laughs> there's actually there's actually something closer to that later in this article. I think if I if I highlighted the right thing, um, but no, this is just really cool. Like Salesforce is like, hey. Uh, not actually, Salesforce has their own models, which I think they're going to offer, and specific and models that are I think specifically trained like for Salesforce stuff, CRM stuff, you know, or whatever. But mm-hmm. it's like not only can, are we going to offer you our model, but we're going to you know you can use OpenAI's model, and you can use um, you know Anthropics or you know, and who knows whatever's next. It's like they've got this whole you know architecture with this pluggable LLM backend. Right. Who else is doing that? I don't know. I mean, maybe somebody, but I just think that's it. it it's it just indicates to me that they're very, you know. Because okay, let me back up. Salesforce has announced all kinds of things. Some yeah. of them make it to the to GA, and so many of them don't. Right, and so many of them, so many of them, it seems like we're never even really real. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, and, and there's an overwhelming amount of uh, marketing BS and spin around AI in general in the world. And so, you know, when Salesforce started talking about this, it's like, well, okay, uh, we'll we'll see, you know, proofs in the pudding. Right. But it's stuff like this that makes me think, okay, no, they're they're serious about this. And I mean, obviously, you know, if you look at if you looked at Dreamforce, I mean, it's it's clear they're <laughs> they're very serious <laughs> about this. It's not that anyone should doubt that they're serious, but this is just like concrete. Well, they're serious. Y- they're y- serious in the way that this is core. So if you think it, about right. if you think about ThunderCloud. Which was not core. Or, it uh, was it was outsourced to Microsoft. <laughs> that's you're right about that. Yeah, Thunder and I cloud. think that's the difference. That's Thunder what shows cloud. the seriousness of, of it is that it's core or the the Bitcoin cloud or whatever that was. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the Bitcoin cloud. <laughs> what was that called? Um, blockchain. Blockchain. There blockchain. You go. <laughs> I think, does that still exist? Or they they you know, they, they kind of quietly retire a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um. Did we ever talk about? I guess we did. Yeah, we did. Okay. Okay. Um, he also says that we've re- recently launched Einstein Copilot Studio, which brings together a number of tools which help you. See, this is weird. It's, I'm, I'm, 
there are missing words. Okay. I instapapered this, and any of the links that are bolded from Safa's article are, are not in the instapaper. Someone needs to figure that out. <laughs> so, like, I'm missing words. Okay, which brings together a number of tools, including Prompt Builder, mm-hmm. which helps you construct prompt templates using merge fields. So this is – this is I've, the more I thought about this, and, I've, of course, I saw some demos at Dreamforce and reading through more of this, this – these are very interesting because you can write prompts and basically merge in, like mail merge, right? Um, you know, record, like really record specific things to the to the prompt. But yeah, Einstein Copilot. I just highlighted the word Einstein Copilot Studio. Well, I don't know. I'm not even sure what I was thinking there, but it was either interesting or or questionable to me. One of the two. What, what do you think, John? Einstein Copilot Studio. Well, that's that's the. That's what's going to enable all that stuff. So it's the umbrella term for like the prompt builder and the model builder and whatever other builder they're going to have underneath that. And then there's also like I a, think you need not, we might need a builder builder. It's the builder of builders. <laughs> and then there's like an enterprise builder version. Yo, of dog, the I heard you like builders. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, next, developers will soon be able to make a calls to Einstein right inside of Apex. Now, I highlighted this because that's funny. Like, listen, if your AI is so good that I can call Einstein, yeah. that's impressive. That's I'm impressive. telling you, we're only a few years out from having <laughs> Einstein's head in a glass bubble. Uh, it's called the Einstein LLM Generations API. Boy, that rolls off the tongue, guys. Yeah. Um, okay. There's a lot of security stuff. That's, that stuff's all really cool. Obviously, Salesforce is going to do a good job on that. Uh, there's another thing um, that I highlighted. They, there's this process called grounding, which I was like, okay, what's this? So grounding is the process of adding additional context to the prompt prompt that will enable the LLM to generate response with much more relevance and less chance of hallucination. And there's, he splits it up. There's two kinds of grounding that can happen. And I I was also thinking like, what, okay, what kind of context? And do I have control? My first thought was, okay, I've, I have, I've used your Einstein co-pilot studio to, to create my own prompt template with Mm -hmm. my little merge fields that send a specific prompt that I I've crafted mm-hmm. to the LLM. What co- what additional context are you giving it? Am I seeing this context? Do I have control over this context? I think you do. I think I, I equate it to, uh, for lack of a better word, Google Foo. Okay. Do you know what Google Foo is? Yeah, just like your skill on Google, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Your ability to kind of write the question, a prompt, mm. into the search engine right. in order to produce better results. Exactly. And that's what I think that is. Like, you can have... Or even SSO optimization, but, you know, finding those right keywords. I get that, John. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, like, when I when I go to the Googles and I type in the little text box, and, I, and I'm good. I have some good Google fun. I know how to use Google well, you know. <laughs> but what if my browser, what if I use Brave, what if Brave was behind the scenes adding additional things to my search query, context, because it thinks that, you know, I needed my, my search terms embellished some. Like, I wouldn't like that. And I'm not uh, – well, listen, I'm may, not may, – Maybe it's your perspective. Maybe it's a matter of business context. Like maybe it's like show me my top competitors. But the grounding is show me my top competitors in the steel industry because we're in the steel industry. Uh, yeah. But I should be able to control that as a, as my in my prompt template. Anyway, I'm kind of setting up a straw man here because I don't, I don't actually think this is a concern. But anyway, he splits it into two – there's two sides of types of grounding. Client-side grounding – so that's that's grounding within the page context. So assuming, you know, I guess we're in like a web page mm-hmm. uh, kind of context here. 
This occurs when the, a prompt is being selected in the context of a record page and populates the merge fields with currently the, the data from the record, right? So, for example, grounding occurs when generating an email to a contact in the context of a current record. But to me, that's that just that to me that sounds like the prompt template still. Like that's well, you're grounding the template, but with what? And with more with, data with more than I put record. in the template with from more data from that record. But no, but I in my template I got to specify which merge fields I wanted in there. That I I was right. able to craft that. that. But it doesn't know what that field's going to be ahead of time. It's at the point that you execute oh, that so you're template. The template is grounding. No, the template is not grounded. It's just got placeholders, and you ground oh, oh, it so by filling you, in those uh, placeholders. Okay. It's Madlibs. Well, okay, maybe I'm just like way the template is Madlibs. Uh, maybe I'm just way overthinking this term grounding. And it's like yeah. it's just populating the template. Okay, yeah. uh, or merging the template with with a record. Right. Okay. And there's server side grounding, and then this occurs when a response is being generated behind the scenes. Now, this is interesting. So, for example, if a prompt is generated, uh, if a prompt is being populated through a flow or apex. The trust layer will be compiled by querying the database directly. Now, that seemed like a lot of hand-waving and smoke and mirrors to me. Like, what does that mean? Where, and again, my question is, where does this additional context come from? I'm going to read that again. If a prompt is being populated through a flow or apex, the trust layer will be compiled. We're, we're, John, mm-hmm. we are compiling the trust layer. Mm-hmm. How long does that compilation take? That's got to be big, right? Not long. Is, I, is, I think is Daniel, that's... Is Daniel Barger going to slap me on the back of the head for, <laughs> for <laughs> compiling a, you know, four million line of, lines of code uh, in an Apex transaction? <laughs> I think it's compiling the prompt. But yeah. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for picking on people personally on this. I mean, it's all, it's all in fun. You're just name dropping. And also, like, we probably should have just said Stefan on the show instead of uh, yeah. talking about his article. But. So I think that's part of the zero retention policy that they have, which is that they're not going to pre-compile your prompts... And, and index them in some way because obviously that leaves data at rest that's that's got uh, uh, untrusted data or data that you're trusting. Yeah. So to avoid that, they're they're executed on the fly, which does cost resources, but at least you're you're in a secure context. So I'm going to translate like the trust layer being compiled to your template being merged. Okay. I think those. I think that's what that means. Yeah. Okay. Uh. And then there's also dynamic grounding, which is, again, additional data is brought into the prompt that incorporates business logic or external data sources. So, again, I I hope that's something we have control over. I think so. Okay. So, this says this level of grounding only occurs on the server side of the transaction. Get this. When the prompt is being hydrated, Mm -hmm. each data provider, like Flow or Data Cloud, is called to add additional information. So, that makes it sound like I am getting to provide that. But I think I find it interesting that we're hydrating the prompt. I like the word hydrate. Are, are they too not much. feeding Einstein enough water? Or is he not getting a you know? No, wait, I love is, the is word hydration. I, I never you well, never saw this, but there was a time in my personal environments I had to hydrate methods everywhere because I loved the word. Because you had this this hmm. data structure that was just empty. And the word hydrate was such a it just clicked with yeah. me that I started using it everywhere yeah. as a verb. There's a Unix compression utility called deflate. Uh-huh. I wonder if they should, they should have called it dehydrate. <laughs> that was a missed opportunity. That seems less useful, though. <laughs> I had to, I deflated. Instead of like map.clear, it's map.dehydrate or list.dehydrate. <laughs> no, clear is like wiping it completely. Dehydrating is like you're taking out all the unnecessary bits that can be just filled back oh, in sure. later with, yeah. without any material loss of resolution. Yeah, that's called reduce. Yeah. 
Uh, and then there's data masking. So there's the process of data masking. We use a named entity detection tool that offers broad coverage, including government ID and PCI entities. A named entity detection tool. Uh, here are the entity types. Person, phone number, email address, location, SSN, ITIN. Uh-oh, we have alerts. Tell us to get out of the building. No, I don't know what this is. What it's is an amber alert. Amber alert. Uh, U.S. driver's license, U.S. passport, credit card, U.S. bank number, and IBAN code, international bank account number. Uh, so I guess it looks for those. Now, I'm, I'm wondering, like, is it using AI? Or is this just like regular expression matching, pattern matching? And a more advanced version of it, I'm sure, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Whatever, whatever the uh, AI brain decided to represent that in its brain. What's kind of cool, though, is like if you have a person's name, like their example is like, it's not to say they. It's the Stefan. Stefan's examples. Write an account overview for the custom William Clark. So if that if that is after your after your uh, trust layer is compiled, and the result is write an account overview for the customer William Clark. Mm-hmm. That gets massive. And becomes write an account overview for the customer person zero or whatever. And so when it comes back from the LLM, it the LLM is going to have the term person underscore zero but then now it's back we're back on the salesforce side of the fence salesforce can then replace all those placeholders with the actual original values sure so again that's probably hard to do and hard to get right and it's pretty slick though it is pretty slick yeah. you know unfortunately you are going to sacrifice some but it's context that the that the lm doesn't need that's, it's a that's, noun. That's, it's a noun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All you need to know uh, is that it's a noun. That's, the, I, that's probably fair. I was going to say that's the argument, but that's probably fair. Like, why does the LM need someone's email address? Yeah. It doesn't even know it's an email. Yeah, because the email address doesn't provide any valuable. Right. In fact, with these hallucinating LMs nowadays, if someone has, like, beerlover69 at gmail.com, it, it's probably going to read into the fact that, oh, this guy's a beer lover, so I'm gonna, it's going to, like, bring in some, like, beer stuff <laughs> into into the response, which is n- not material at all, right? Right. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> then we have prompt defense. Prompt defense. We have to defend our prompts, John. We follow masking with a set of prompt defense heuristics such as instruction defense, to steer the model output towards a desirable outcome, along with post-prompting instructions that further guard against prompt injection attacks. Prompt injection attacks. Is this something we have to... Is this Does this need to make the OWASP top 10 uh, it's, vulnerability? It's, it's a risk. Yeah. Prompt injection attacks. It's a risk. I, honestly, I hadn't even thought about that. That's Well, that's, if you're dynamically a, allowing your prompts to be generated based on user input, then yeah, it's a risk. But my question to Stefan is, okay, these prompt defense heuristics, do, do we get to see those? Oh, I don't know. Do they get logged? And I think the answer— You have to buy a at least to that second, shield to yeah, get yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> well, we do log those, but that's going to cost you. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> always the answer, right? <laughs> um, it sounds like this stuff does get logged. This He talks more about how— uh, yeah, all this stuff gets logged. And what's cool is, especially for these interactive things where it's interactively generating um, responses and then like a customer service agent or marketing person or whoever it is can then say, ah, that's great. I'll take it. Or no, that's not good. And I don't know if they'll be able to say why it's not good or whatever, but all those, the human verification steps at the end there, those are also getting logged. 
which are using as feedback mm. back into the whole, probably not the model, but to that, all that middle, I'll just call this middleware, the trust layer, everything in there. It's like, you know, 15 different steps of things, but somewhere in there, it's probably using the human decisions on the responses um, to to further train that kind of middleware to get you better responses in the future. Yeah, I would imagine that the feedback is that it would go through the trust layer, which would mask all of the, all of the what is it, PII information, and, yeah. then, and then send that on to the LM. Um, there's also this, like, I forget where it was, but there's, like, this abuse detection. And if, and this is what's interesting, I can't find where he talks about this, but... If there's a, if the if abuse comes out of the model, uh-huh. then obviously Salesforce tries to filter that out, right? But also logs it and and like notifies someone. Yes, yeah, so Salesforce, toxicity. Salesforce is notified. The toxicity but also, detection. It's it's detecting abuse going into the model. So don't abuse Einstein. You know you can't abuse because, you can't abuse Siri either. Because if you abuse Einstein, Stefan's going to come slap you on the back of the head. <laughs> You ever get frustrated with Siri and just curse and she's still listening and she like responds back like that not to, to, to be nicer or something like that? Uh, you know what? I don't abuse Siri, John. That sounds like something you should talk to your therapist about. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and the look on your face is I wish everyone could see that. <laughs> I have guilt over these assistants. Like I like I they'll they'll annoy me and I'll curse and then they'll respond back and I actually feel bad. I don't. I don't curse at my uh, assistants, John. Um, okay, this is this is one of the coolest things. We are supporting. We are also supporting a build your own model. Uh, sorry, bring your own model approach that enables teams to create uh, predictive AI models using their existing machine learning platforms. Training these models with data in Data Cloud, then activating those predictions across Salesforce. Customers can. Uh, create these predictive models with Sage, Amazon SageMaker, and they are piloting uh, Vertex, Google's uh, Vertex AI, and also Databricks. Yeah. Um, so that's that's pretty darn cool, man. Yeah. I mean... I wish uh, I wish Benioff... This is, during his... this, is, this is the leverage that sells... This is... I think this is going to give Salesforce leverage that they've been looking for for quite... for years now. Yes. Years. Yeah. They've tried different things, you know, Salesforce is a creative company, a lot of acquisitions, a lot of internally built stuff, and, and you know, some things really successful and some things, you know, all right, that's just business, right? Um, yeah. You know, and you try to look at your batting average and you try to do the best you can. Um, right. This, this is, I mean, the amount of interest I'm seeing from everything from, because, you know, I'm I've talked to a lot of Salesforce customers. Um, the amount of interest that that I am seeing from everything from larger organizations, but also the smaller organizations, mm-hmm. like they're all listening and following this. Yeah. And they're all, it, people are connecting with it. That's, I think that's what I'm trying to think of like, what, how do I put words into what's going in my head right now? People are connecting with this. And maybe you can credit that with Salesforce's, you know, marketing team mm-hmm. and the messaging. 
But I think, I mean, people, you know, some of these features and things that come out, I think they just fall flat. People are like, oh, we've got, you know, the newest change data capture, you know, algorithm. And it's like, people are like, you know, most people don't. I mean, I'm like, to me, that's like, that's what gets me excited, right? But most people, that they don't, whatever, they don't get it. Yeah, I saw your eyes roll back when you said that. But people are connecting with this in a way that I just, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the last time I saw. And and I think... And people are interested in this, and I think they, they're interested in the potential of it. And I think this is where – I think this article is what Benioff's keynote should have been about. It should have been about these features, these positives, these types of things instead of the – Well, explain to me why you don't think his keynote was about that. Because he spent a lot of time talking about how untrustworthy the other models well, were. Well, I know. That, and I think so he should I have been talking I, okay. about more about how Salesforce's model is trustworthy. Yeah. And I these know. type of things that I think resonate right. with people. Right. Well, I think you and I both agree that that, that that could – I think that message could have been crafted a little bit differently. It might have been. It was, it was a little thud heavy. It right? might have been. I, I think the well, way he presented it seemed like he was kind of off the cuff half the time. I don't know. Maybe so. But. Let's, you know That's what, let's, my um, I've got a little bit of time on my calendar this week. Let's, let's put a call in and, and get him on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. Get an interview in. Sure. Yeah. Um, oh, here's, I had something about that. I uh, just highlighted on the Einstein toxicity detector uses a, okay. I have a question for you about this. Yeah. Thought I was doing the trivia. Well, you will, uh, but it uses a hybrid solution combining a rule-based profanity filter, uh, regular expressions and an AI model. Developed by Salesforce researcher, Cell, sorry, Salesforce research, and it's a transformer slash flan T5 base model. That sounds tasty. I do love me some flan. I mean, it's, it's really it's, it's got T5 in the name. That could be like the first, the, like Terminator 5 model. Oh, wow. By the movies that went to the T1000. Yeah. Isn't that how they do tornadoes? T, T, or is it E? T? You, no, oh, this F, is like the beginning sorry. days of Terminator. T5. See, it was oh, yeah. it was a T one thousand that wow. came back in time. Now this is the T five. Anyway, it's uh, imagine it's, when it gets to a thousand. It's a model that's been trained on two point three million prompts from seven legal approved data sets. Okay, that sounds uh, official. Anyway, when they were yeah, when I think about like how okay, it's like it's looking for toxicity and all the stuff. I'm like okay. So the LLMs themselves aren't smart enough to not give you toxic answers, but we're going to use an LLM to detect toxic answers. Maybe it's just like, you know, surely you can't get through two levels of LLMs and still get a bad answer. Oh, we've, we've, all, we've <laughs> got no, that. That's what, that's what the regex is for. The regex is the final. So you got your initial LLM that gives you the toxic answer. Then they're using the the tasty, delicious Mexican dessert no. LLM to, to detect your toxicity. And then the final thing is, well, shit, let's just use regex. Because you know what really works really well? We know it works. Regex works. <laughs> now, here's a better analogy. You have your you have the, the guy in the club, and you have the guy in the club's wingman who filters the guy to, so that he, he's uh, sounding better. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I mean, I like the metaphor, John. <laughs> I don't know. I try. Um Oh, yeah, so this is this is okay. This is a cool part too. When a response is prevented to, presented to a user, or maybe prevented, mm. uh, they have the ability to provide feedback on the quality of the content through the feedback framework. The feedback framework. I feel like they should have workshopped that one a little bit. I mean, all these fancy words for things, and then we, the last thing is just a feedback framework. There's a whole new vocabulary around this whole thing. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It is, isn't it? I need a I need a lexicon. An you AI know why? Lexicon. Because this is coming right out of the universities, and we're we're consuming their vocabulary and it's just it's 
pretentious in some ways. But so users can accept, modify, modify, that's interesting, or reject the result, the outcome of which is stored as a part of our feedback framework. It is then logged in our audit trail, enabling us to refine our own internal and Salesforce hosted models once those become available this year. This audit trail includes timestamp meta, metadata, detailing, <laughs> don't trigger me, Salesforce, detailing the context of the interaction with the LLM, including the original prompt safety scores about toxicity and the original output. It also includes any action taken by the end user, such as whether or not they accepted, rejected, modified. Uh, the auditor helps to simplify compliant use of generative AIs. Anyway, I think I think that is uh, that nice final piece that, again, if they do that right, it's going to learn what your organization needs out of these models and what's in bounds, out of bounds. Yeah. Again, this is, I mean, I think this is working. Um, I think, you know, they have this running. Um, I haven't got my hands on it yet. Is it available to check out? I think it is, right? I don't know. I'm hoping to experiment with it soon, actually. There's some things I want to do. We have a hackathon coming up, and I think I want to implement some of this Mm. for it. Also look at Data Cloud, since it's kind of free for limited use. Anyway, um, I'm sure we got a lot of things wrong on that. Sure. And uh, Stefan's probably yelling at us in yep. his podcast player, but that's what the Slack is for. That's what coming on the show is for. That's true. Um, that's what flying into Dallas and coming onto the show in person is for. <laughs> that's true. Yes. <laughs> hint, hint. Um, yep. <laughs> but, dear listener, those of you who are not in the Slack, we do have a, we, this community has a Slack where we discuss things like this. And people get to correct how wrong and I, wrong John and I are about most things we talk about. And if you're not in the Slack, you should do. You should get in the Slack by going to good www.gooddayserpodcast.com and click on community, and you can uh, add yourself. Anyway, that was a. We're not done yet, though. By the way, sorry, folks. We're you're not done. <laughs> we're not done with. We're not done with you. Half the people already clicked off. Uh, we know we have a we have a quiz show coming up. Yeah, it, it's it, there's not that many questions, so it's going to be quick. But That's I fine. did do something interesting. I went to OpenAI. And I asked it uh, to come up with 10, question, 10 trivia questions about Salesforce AI. Ooh. And it actually did. And then I but, said... Hang on. But this model is only trained on through like January 2022 or something like that? Yeah. This is a 3.5. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you, don't, you don't have the browser, the browsing plugin probably. Probably not. Yeah. So, because with the browsing plugin, it can actually, it actually will go out and search the web mm-hmm. and then try to give you an answer based on that. It didn't do too bad, but okay. it does. It does seem very so. You're Einstein that, specific, not Einstein next generation platform specific. Yeah. So um, you're saying this uh, the segment's going to be AI, AI generated? No, no, no. I have a natural one that I did. I'm kidding, but I thought okay. I thought it'd be interesting to see what it came up with since we're talking about AI. Are, are we ready, John? And it is it is a bit drier. No, no, no trivia for this one because I just want to blow through it because it's it's like ten questions and I just want to see. We'll just like rapid fire this. I did work. On our thing. I'm no, gonna, we're going to do that. Okay. We're going to do that. You're going to do that for my stuff. Your stuff. But okay. for the for the AI-generated trivia oh, stuff, okay. we're not going to do okay. it. Okay, okay. Because I just want to blow through that because it was just a creative exercise. Gotcha. Um, and the answers are actually pretty dull, and it kind of speaks to creativity versus AI. Yeah. <laughs> All right, first question. And these are multiple choice, so I'll just blow through it. Oh, no, I lost it. Okay, here it is. No, I lost it. There it is. 
What is the name of Salesforce AI's powered assistant that helps users interact with the platform and find information more easily? Is it A, Watson, B, Siri, C, Einstein, D, Alexa? Watson. Right on the money. Ah, dang it. <laughs> I said right on the money. Oh, it is Watson. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Salesforce <laughs> Einstein <laughs> is an AI platform that primarily focuses on improving what within the Salesforce ecosystem? A, customer support. B, data storage. C, artificial intelligence. D, data analytics. What was the question? Uh, Salesforce Einstein is an AI platform that primarily focuses on improving what within the Salesforce ecosystem? Was this is this is one of those that, customer service. I don't know. Well, this one says artificial intelligence, okay. but I think this one got it wrong. Yeah, because I think you would say customer support in terms in the context of Salesforce, but in this context, in its context, it thinks artificial intelligence. Yep. Okay. Salesforce introduced an AI-powered feature that predicts which leads are more li most likely to convert into customers. What is this feature called? A. Einstein lead scoring. B. Salesforce predict. C. Lead conversion pro. D. <laughs> Lead genius. Hey. <laughs> lead genius. I like that. I like that Someone one. Someone should copyright that. However, Trademark. these answers are only good for like maybe a month before Salesforce rebrands it all. Right. Uh, what Salesforce AI tool uses natural language processing to, to extract insights from unstructured text data, helping business gain a better understanding of their customers? A, Salesforce NLP insights. <laughs> B, Einstein language. C, NLP pro. D, text analyzer. I guess Einstein language. You got to go with the branded term, right? Yeah, yeah. And probably none of those are real, but... Yeah. Here's a trick one. Uh, which Salesforce AI tool uses machine learning to automatically classify and route service requests to the most appropriate support agents? Agent IQ, case router, support IQ, Einstein service. I don't know. Surprisingly, it's not branded. It says it's case router. Is that? Do we have any idea if these are right or not? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, he has no things. idea. Those are the type of things you'll get from GPT. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to our stuff. Our stuff. We ready? Yeah. All right. Here we go. We gotta bring it down a bit, right? Yeah. All right. John. We haven't used that in a long time. I know. I think there was a reason for it, but I don't remember. Oh, we know, we know why. Are you t I forgot, but you told me. Oh, I did, didn't yeah. I? Sorry. That's okay. I had beers. Yep. <laughs> All right, here's a really hard one. What is an LLM? A, lifelike learning model. <laughs> B, lexical language model. Ooh. C, large language model. D, lake house learning model. Can I respond with a question? What is a land witch? Land witch? Language. Language. Oh. <laughs> Wow. There. The I'm like, is that a form of a sandwich that's like a <laughs> language? I told you one. Well, you gave me two. I know this because I read Stefan's article. It's a large language model. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, what trust layer in. Trust layer? <laughs> Can't do this. What trust layer includes and which you, of and the you following? You have Benioff shit, John. You know, I do. Wow. Benioff was drunk. Uh, whatever. All right. What's your question? What trust layer includes which of the following? Uh, A. Toxic toxicity detection. B. Feedback framework. C. Audit trail. D. All of the above. All of the above. Oh, there you go. You're paying attention. Yeah, I did my homework. Yeah. Thanks, Stefan. <laughs> uh, next one. What is a data lake house? A. A server farm hosted at Benioff's lake house. <laughs> 
B. That's it. it. B. A data warehouse. C. A data lake. D. A cluster of hyperforce pods. Or E. B and C. I bought F, something that I probably cannot afford. Sounds real. It sounds like way too bougie for me. (laughs) Uh, So the answer is B and C. It's a. It combines the best features of data warehouse and data lake technology while also overcoming their limitations. You know what? People already didn't know the difference between a data warehouse and data lake. I deal with this every day. So yeah. people definitely aren't going to understand what a data lake house is. So the data data warehouse is storage of of information, categorized information. Yeah. It's whereas like, the lake is raw information. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know what all these terms are? They these are vendor vendors invent these terms these to are sell marketing more terms. stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Einstein Copilot Studio, which is in Pilot, um, <laughs> includes a prompt builder, a prompt builder, B skills builder, C model builder, D A and C, which is prompt builder and model builder, or E all of the above. I think it's A. Am I wrong? Is there another one? There's too many builders, Sean. I need to build for my builder. I'll just bust myself. <laughs> it's all of the above. Yeah. Okay. It's all of the above, huh? Because all this. Wow, what a bargain. What yeah. a bargain, John. What a bargain. I don't even know what it costs, but whatever it is, it's a bargain. If you have to ask. Yeah. During the Dreamforce 23 keynote, while discussing generative AI, Benioff stated, you get a lot of answers that aren't exactly true. They call them hallucinations. And Benioff Canadian said... He called them A, predictions, Mm, B, a psychedelic experience, C, the fifth industrial revolution, or D, lies. Lies. Yeah. He said they're amazing liars. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) According to a Salesforce developer blog posted titled, Building AI-powered apps with LLMs and Einstein, when building your own model for you... uh, when building your own model, you should consider one or more of the following when training your model. A. Time and resources. B. Expertise. C. Data security. Or D. All of the above. It has to be D. Yeah. yeah. All of the above. <clears throat> and last one, because I ran out of time. <laughs> Data masking within the Einstein trust layer currently detects one or more of the following types. A. A person's full name. B employee IDs C email address D credit cards E passwords so pick from any of those one or more let's start with person's full name yes or no yes okay not B employee IDs no nope okay uh email addresses yep yes yep uh credit cards yep yes passwords nope nope correct Last quiz that there, John. Done quickly. Yeah. Well, I think we're kind of rushing it because uh, it's it's, it's nine o'clock. Quite late. It's, nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely past John and I's bedtime. Well, I hope mine was more fun than the AI generated. Yeah, quiz. yeah. Yours was this, and maybe this is just goes to prove the point that uh, you know AI is good for some things, but when you're looking for that artisanal, uh, small batch, handcrafted experience, <laughs> cannot replace a human. 
You get to inject a little personality into it. Yeah. All right, John. Well, this is a good one. Thanks for uh, squeezing this one in, making it happen on a late on a Tuesday night. Yeah. Got any closing thoughts? Did, did it all for the army? Yeah. No, we got sacrifice for the army. And I, you don't want the natives to get restless, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, we are talking about the Slack. You can also email us info at goodacerpodcast dot com uh, with questions, sticker requests. I promise I'll get stickers out someday. I'm on about a once a year program. No, it's not that bad. Um, what else? We got a batch out. Uh, oh, yeah, it's I've completed step one, which is printing the labels. <laughs> did that about, I could tell did by that, that about, stutter. Did that about three weeks ago. By that stutter, yeah. you, you hadn't done your homework. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, just join the Slack. Uh, just subscribe if you don't subscribe already. You know, I don't know why people don't do that. I can't imagine going to a podcast website and listening. People but, do. I know, it's crazy. Yeah. We see it, I know. Uh, but anyway, okay, what else, John? Well, share, like us. On the Go get your badges. Yep. On the X's, formerly known as Twitter. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm Jeremy Ross, and John, you are just what, John DeSantiago? Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, there you go. We're, yeah, because John and I produce such uh, amazing Twitter content. So, yep. Go follow us. Not really. <laughs> All right, John. Into that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. You're seeing what happens. When journalists actually do their job. Oh my gosh.